Hello, friends. I am so pleased to welcome you to this episode of JOY and to introduce you to our guest, Ms. Natalie Larison. I am your host, the Reverend Mary Vano and the Rector of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, and you're listening to JOY, a podcast in which our conversations about life and faith always include Jesus, others, and you. Ms. Larison is the Director of Humanitarian Projects for the Syrian Emergency Task Force, a non-governmental organization working to end the atrocities against Syrian civilians through advocacy, humanitarian initiatives, and the pursuit of justice and accountability for war crimes. Natalie is from nearby Hot Springs, Arkansas, a graduate of the University of Central Arkansas, and is described by our mutual friend as a bright, selfless, and determined leader. Natalie, thank you for joining us. I'm really looking forward to learning more about you and your work. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm so excited to talk to you today, Reverend Mary. Well, for listeners who may not know much about what is happening in Syria, would you please start by telling us what the Syrian emergency is? What is happening there? The crisis in Syria began 12 years ago. In fact, March 15th will mark the 12-year commemoration since the beginning of this crisis in Syria. The Syrian people all around the country have been attacked by their dictator. Peaceful protests arose in the southern cities of Syria in 2011, and the entire country came out in solidarity with these sieges that the government was imposing on its people. And since then, the government has really attacked its own people with the worst war crimes and weapons, including chemical weapons, the targeting of hospitals and schools, neighborhoods, very similar exactly actually to what's happening right now in Ukraine. And so 12 years into this crisis, we're still seeing the worst conditions ever for the Syrian people in the northwest of Syria. This is where there is no government. This is also the area where the bombs continue to drop on Syrians by the Russian Air Force, by the government of Syria, and by Iran. The civilians are still being threatened by this. There's been over 60 bombings on areas that were affected by the earthquake in northwest Syria since that happened one month ago. And so there's still this complete lack of stability in Syria, lack of resources and needs, especially in northwest Syria, where they continue to be vulnerable. There's five and a half million people in this northwest corner of Syria that remain in danger and out of government control. And there's really not a sure, clear path for what's going to happen to them in the future. I know that's a very serious situation. So what then is the Syrian Emergency Task Force? What does it do? So the Syrian Emergency Task Force was formed in 2011 with the mission to end the killing of civilians in Syria for entirely the right reasons in finding accountability for war crimes, which extends much further than Syria. You know, it's difficult for anyone to see that war crimes can be committed by governments around the world with impunity. And so we really need to find a solution for more than just the people of Syria for accountability. And our main focus is advocacy. This is where our executive director has really been a voice for the Syrian people in Congress, in UK Parliament, 
with communities around the world and our connections on the ground inside Syria within civil society networks and partners. And so advocacy for diplomatic ways that we can prevent killing of Syrians. And this includes sanctions. We passed a bill in 2017 called the Caesar Law, and this is going to hinder the regime from having access to airplane parts, or it's going to put sanctions on different countries who are providing any of the weapons and things that are helping the Syrian government attack its civilians. All of this work, the advocacy, the accountability work, the awareness work, the work to bring journalists into the right places and connected to the right people. We've had six 60-minute stories over the last few years that we've facilitated and an upcoming one that we expect that's going to have to do with the earthquake. It also evolved naturally to have humanitarian projects. For instance, Arkansas, our community in Conway, including just some really amazing members of the Episcopal Church there, St. Peter's Mm -hmm. actually said, look, we want to do something more for the Syrian people. What can we do that we can watch grow? That's not just a one-time gift. And this community in Conway committed to helping these teachers that we identified inside war-torn Syria that were taking care of over 100 little kids, three to five years of age, in an underground space. It's beautiful what the community of Arkansas has done for people inside Syria, supporting education, supporting the future. This is the hope of the Syrian people who have less and less hope in what the international community has been able to do to help their suffering. So we started these humanitarian programs, including the Wisdom House Kindergarten that was born right here in central Arkansas. A year later, we started a women's center. I also oversee our work with Rukban Camp, which is a besieged camp with 6,000 people in southern Syria. Right now, they're out of flour. Right now, they have no operating school or bakery. We run the only no-cost pharmacy in this camp, and they're in trouble. And so we do whatever we can to bring attention to that humanitarian disaster. We also have a center in Gaziantep which is right on the border of Turkey and Syria. This was actually the epicenter of one of the earthquakes that happened recently. Our center there is okay, thank God. It's a beautiful four-story building, and we host Syrian internally displaced people who are from the Northwest who are allowed temporarily into Turkey to receive medical treatment. And so it's kind of like the Ronald McDonald House. They're able to stay at this shelter, and there's food and hygiene and care in between appointments and transportation. And so this is so, so important. And these humanitarian programs are a microcosm of the bigger you know, issue, which is that all of these Syrians, they have the right to have medical care and education. And so they reflect really the more massive problem of a generation not having education, which is the scariest thing for Syrian people all around the world, whether they're still inside Syria or outside. That's amazing. All that you're doing. And I love that there are faithful people right here in central Arkansas making a difference around the world in Syria for those who are in need. But the need is great and only compounded by this recent earthquake, I think. How has that earthquake impacted the region and how has it impacted your work there? 
this earthquake on top of the disaster that the Syrian people inside of Syria and who live in southern Turkey are already experiencing as refugees. This just was a whole different level of disaster for both Turkish people and Syrians. The first earthquake was like a 7.8. Two hours later, there was also an earthquake that was over seven points. And so anything that was kind of shooken up or unstable from the first quake was going to crumble the second time. This is devastating. I know that the total death count right now is about 50,000, but we are really nervous that it might be up to 150,000. There are so many family members who are still under their homes, buried in their own houses. It's awful. This earthquake was along some fault and it affected southern Turkey and about 10 different major cities in southern Turkey. Turkey has taken in more Syrian refugees than anywhere in the world, about 4 million. Half of those Syrian refugees live in one of these areas that were affected in southern Turkey. And so we see many, many, many Syrians also being affected there. In northwest Syria, this is an area outside of the government control. They were not benefited from any of the UN aid because the UN aid goes through Damascus, where the government controls the aid and is very notorious for withholding aid, even from his regime-held areas. And so certainly wasn't going to share any of that with northwest Syria, the same places that they are bombing. The UN does have access to the Northwest opposition-held Syria through one corridor that is actually controlled by Russia and the regime. But there is a reason for humanitarian aid if both borders are okay with it for humanitarian aid from the UN to enter. This is entirely humanitarian. They needed excavators immediately because they could hear their loved ones calling for their help and they couldn't get to them. So we have 5 million people in this area who had no access to international aid. The UN took six days to cross that border that was ready the second day. They could have saved so many more people, but they kind of waited for this decision by the regime to get permission, and they didn't even need to do that. It's just unnecessary suffering. Since then, the general of the UN has made a statement apologizing to the people of the Northwest for the failure of the UN to reach them. It's really awful. So really in the Northwest, they were depending on normal people. Some of the teachers that we work with inside Syria became first responders, helping to try to dig out family members with their bare hands. The White Helmets is this amazing civil defense, and they are the first responders on the ground. They are complete volunteers, and they have been digging people out of rubble for years because of the war. And they were the ones digging people out of the rubble of the earthquake, but they were just exhausted by it. They did not get the call for help from the international community that they sent out. And so there's just some real issues going on. And something that the task force, what we've been able to do is get journalists to cover these areas. In fact, we facilitated the first international journalist to get into Northwest Syria. That resulted in front page articles, including a recent Al Jazeera segment that was amazing. And since then, we've facilitated over 20 journalists into Northwest Syria, which is really very difficult to do. You have to have a lot of permissions and, and everything, but it needs exposure and the Syrian people are asking for it. I get these videos of cries for help, but I'm afraid that those are not being shared widely enough. So that's a huge challenge for us. But we also are able to tell the stories from the Syrians that we're directly connected to. 
thankfully, the Wisdom House and Tamar's Dawn were spared from major damages from the earthquake. So about 20 miles in between our Women's Center and Wisdom House, you know, they're probably like an hour drive apart. In between them was the city called Jindaris that was completely flattened. Thousands of people are buried under the rubble and remain there in this city that was already destroyed first time by the regime. So there's a lot of heartbreak. Our executive director, who is Syrian but has been an Arkansan since he was about 10, was in Syria the week after the earthquake to bear witness and bring in journalists. And I myself returned about a week ago, actually, from the region. And I went to southern Turkey and visited a city called Hatay or Antakya. This is a place where some of the earliest Christian churches are. Things that have survived thousands of years are now just rocks on the ground. So we visited Hatay and walked around to witness some of the destruction and pass out cash assistance through our emergency funds that we've been gathering. This is so incredibly important. The need is absolutely, we can't even imagine it. So many people won't go back into their homes. And so they're staying in tents outside. There are so many families who still do not have tents. And so from the very basic necessities, the whole world should really listen to this call because this situation is very, very dark and it's not going to heal anytime soon. But I think that they need hope from people like you, Reverend Mary, and your congregation who are listening and who care and are amplifying their voices through such things as this podcast. So I think that's very important. The earthquake has kept us very, very busy, but it's also brought attention to this horrific need to see and witness what's going on in Syria and elsewhere because the suffering is great. And, you know, that's something that I feel responsible to speak out about. As bleak as it all is, I recognize some good news in there that the Wisdom House, the Women's Center, both being spared damage from the earthquake and the opportunities that you have to tell people's stories. And I think you're part of the good news as well. How did you get involved in this work? That's a good question because I am not Syrian. I am just Arkansan, I guess. (laughs) I graduated from University of Central Arkansas in 2011 and went on to be a teacher. And it's funny to think back now that this is the same time period as the Syrian crisis was happening. Mm -hmm. And so I was very much not aware of that and became a high school teacher, which I loved. So for five years, I taught photography, journalism, and English at North Pulaski High School in Jacksonville. And I promise this like prepared me for everything that I'm doing now (laughs) with this nonprofit and this huge cause. But nothing prepares you quite like teaching. At least that's what I feel my school actually closed down. I attended a TED Talk at UCA, and I've known Moaz since high school, really. He was a soccer star, so I knew him and his brother as these soccer stars in Hot Springs. And I knew him a little bit in college. I actually wrote and I interviewed him for an essay called Moaz's Holy Homeland, and it was about Damascus. And this was before the war, so it's really interesting. Things circled back in 2016 when my school actually closed down. Jacksonville got its own school district and it was a juncture for me and it was a God thing. When I listened to this TED Talk by Moaz at UCA, I immediately asked him, you know, afterwards, can we get cameras to Syria? Can we get pictures back to see through their eyes? 
later on, after a few interviews, I became the outreach director, joined a team of about four people, half of them volunteers. We're a very small organization, despite kind of this amazing impact that we've been able to have. This was the same time that those community members, Jerry Adams, Terry Daly, and all these amazing people, Dan and Nancy and Steve and Marty, who had committed to taking care of a big projects like this kindergarten. They said, we're going to raise money and make sure that they're running for years, support the teachers, everything like that. So I got connected with them and became a liaison between the teachers in Syria and our community here, our working group, our volunteers, and everything that kind of leads to the awareness and actual raising of funds to keep those programs going. I started also doing the thing that I know how to do best, which is going to classrooms and just start teaching people about what's going on. I've always had this hope that when people learn like really what's happening, that this is like a Holocaust. Holocaust Memorial Museum was one of our biggest partners. And so really, it's always shocking for people to learn about kind of what's going on, because I guess it's difficult to kind of sift through the news and understand really the reality on the ground. It's been incredible the response that I've gotten from students of all ages, from little kindergartners writing letters of hope. This is another campaign that's been amazing and so well received by our friends inside Syria. Teachers, professors, we're service learning partners with the Clinton School, with UCA, with Hendrix, with many churches and synagogues and mosques around central Arkansas and beyond. Now other communities in LA, in Michigan, in Florida are seeing this kind of prototype of programming and this direct connection between what people inside these war-torn areas and communities who are caring about them and want to connect and do more to help. that you have an emphasis on journalism. That seems to be an approach that you're taking. And I think that is so important because stories are impactful and they help move us. So I'm wondering if you have any stories to share about how your work has impacted people there or how it's impacted you. Just this morning, the teacher sent us all these pictures and a couple videos of the Wisdom House students in Syria. And this little boy, Mustafa, brought a chocolate cake to school to share with everyone. And they said his mother wanted him to bring this cake to school. She made it to you know, express her gratitude for the teachers in the school. That is amazing. The Wisdom House is the most popular school in its area because of our teachers. They're so wonderful and they are supported. And most of our students are orphans. So Mustafa brought this cake and shared with everyone Guys, these pictures are so cute. They're the cutest kids ever. We know their names and we write them letters. They decorate the walls with their letters of hope. And that's just so moving. In terms of other stories that we've heard from the ground, they're horrific. One of our team members has over 20 family members who have died. And these are team members already working on a crisis. And now they are displaced and Mm -hmm. have lost so many family members. And some of them don't even know the fate of some of their family members. The stories from the ground are horrific. There was a Turkish man. When I was in Gaziantep, we were distributing food baskets actually from the House of Healing, which is our program there. And so many people who are living on the streets now came to receive a basket of food and they were in high demand. 
people were desperate for food. And it's so interesting to see people desperate. You know, they're not wanting to be desperate, but they need to feed their families and they don't have anything and they don't have jobs available to even support themselves. And so this handout of baskets was really important and we were giving them to women. Each basket goes to one family. And this is a way that our directors on the ground have been able to really make sure that each family gets a basket of food. There was a man who came up to the door so kind and asked if he could get any kind of support. He had come from like two or three towns over. This was in Turkey. And he came in and talked to us and we helped him with a bit of cash assistance. But he told us this heartbreaking story of him losing his home and maybe two of his family members. And he was like, I've been wearing these same clothes for two weeks. The need is so great. The suffering and pain I don't know how they're going to recover from all of that, but they're going to really need support from the good people of the world to listen to their stories. That's what they are asking right now to see us, to just listen and see our story and what's going on. And if you can offer any help, whether that's your time volunteering or your talent like storytelling, I think that that's the most important thing that we can do. At St. Margaret's, we often ask the question, how have you seen the Holy Spirit at work here? It's a question that prompts us, I think, to first of all, stop for a moment, pause, and really look and notice how we are feeling God's presence in the midst of the chaos of our lives. I wonder how you've witnessed God in your work in Syria. Well, nothing can be possible without God. And that has only been reiterated to me every single day in this work. There are so many miracles that we've overcome, not just myself, but the people that we work with and everything. And I have been able to see the beauty of that through the humanitarian work, which is really the happiest part of the things that we work on. Mm -hmm. And God has been here the whole time. It's really apparent on things such as like this last turkey trip. We packed up 16 bags of aid that were gathered in just a week from so many hands around town, specific things like medical wound care, medicine, blankets, hygiene products, kind of the most essential things that we could gather. And myself and a team member and a volunteer who's a middle school teacher, we took 16 bags of aid all the way from Little Rock, Arkansas to the border Gaziantep, Turkey. And the next day, those bags were inside Syria and distributed to some of the hardest hit areas. 16 bags is not easy to pack and get through the airport. Even the bag contents alone, Central High School, Pulaski Academy, so many hands went into the amazing things that went into these bags. And I know it meant the world to the Wisdom House and Tomorrow's Dawn and all these IDPs that received the aid that were in those bags. It was an easy, smooth trip. Even like the ladies working to check in our bags at both the international check-in situation and also the domestic from Istanbul down to a city close to the border. As soon as they knew that we were taking bags of aid to earthquake victims, they, you know, give us a discount or something. The more people I meet in Syria working on this, the teachers, the aid workers, the non-Syrians who are working on this plight not only in Syria and Turkey, but all around the world. It is so inspiring. And it assures me that there are really, really good people in the world that amaze me and inspire me. And they are just incredible people. The people who we work with on the ground in Syria, 
the teachers, Mumina, they're Muslim and they're very religious. And they are the most beautiful examples of resilience and trusting in God fully. When I say, how are you? They say, Alhamdulillah, which is thank God, no matter what. It's really been powerful to feel God's presence throughout this entire journey. Thank you for sharing that. What a beautiful expression of faith. And, you know, sometimes we wonder where God is in the midst of disaster, but God is so surely there if we have eyes to see. So tell us what sort of help do you need? How can people in our community get involved? We are really proud that we kind of redid our website and it's supposed to help guide people to know what to do. You know, you give people this awful sad news, these hopeless situations, but you have to also give people a way to guidance in what do we do now? How can we help? How can we really help? Donating is always very, 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 very important. Through the task force, we are able to directly provide aid through our programs directly into Syria, into the hands of the most needed there. So donating is really, really important. It keeps the work going, accountability and advocacy and everything like that. Another way that you can do that if you don't have money yourself, you can also fundraise. St. Peter's, for instance, in Conway several years ago held a Soup for Syria fundraiser where we have these cookbooks we sell. And this is also a way that we can make money through the fundraiser is selling these cookbooks. We had some people from the community make different recipes from the cookbook. People bought a ticket, they go in, they can try out all these different soups. It was a great, beautiful way to get the community together. People have been really creative. A Pulaski Academy class a few years ago held a piano concert fundraiser. And in between each act, they kind of said some things about Syria or showed a little video on the Wisdom House or something. If it's not a fundraising event, an awareness event. With the task force and some of the amazing people that we're connected to, we could have a Zoom call with a community and let someone hear from a teacher or someone who's on the ground. Firsthand is very, very powerful. Just yesterday, I was at my alma mater, UCA, and we had an event with the whole sociology department. It was amazing. I got to introduce Rasha, who's our amazing leader who started the Women's Center, and she's in Syria, and she delivered the most amazing presentation for the students and anyone tuning in virtually. It's amazing what people can do with whatever talent you have. If you want to do something for a long time, make sure that you do something that you like to do. So whether it's art or social media, anything like this that can help amplify the need for relief for the Syrian people to their suffering, whether that's telling their stories, bringing it into your own community, writing letters of hope with your family. There's a really good resource for all these ways you can help on our website. It's called Take Action. It's at the very bottom of the homepage, Take Action. And there's a really great list for programming inside of schools, what you can do, meetings with your you know, church groups or anything like that. I've presented to many Bible studies that are like little, little kids. And of course, we present it in a very child-friendly way that <laughs> there's a place called Syria and show it on the map and talk about the culture of Syria. And it's beautiful. And let them know that 12 years ago before the war, Miley Cyrus was number one on the charts. It's a way of just introducing each other and becoming more globally aware and know that we're in this together. And so whatever it is that someone can offer, 
time, energy, money, anything helps. The worst thing that we can do is not do anything. And everyone can do something. For more information, your website is what? S-E-T-F dot N-G-O. The Syrian Emergency Task Force, S-E-T-F dot N-G-O. I hope everyone will go and visit that site and learn more about what is happening in Syria and how the SETF is helping the civilians who are there who are victims of terrible war crimes and injustice. Let's see what we can do to help. In our baptismal covenant, I was thinking about in the Episcopal Church, we make some promises. And one of those promises is to strive for justice and peace among all people and to respect the dignity of every human being. And while there's always work to be done close to home, the truth is we are connected. We can't help but be connected to human beings around the globe. And even people in Syria then count among our neighbors. Jesus encouraged us to think of each other as neighbors, but more important to be neighbors to one another. I was thinking that the prayer for social justice from the Book of Common Prayer might provide a fitting conclusion to our conversation today. I invite you to pray with me. Grant, O God, that your holy and life-giving spirit may so move every human heart that barriers which divide us may crumble, suspicions disappear, and hatred cease, that our divisions being healed, we may live in justice and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I think our joy is complete today. Natalie, thank you so much for your work with the Syrian Emergency Task Force. Thank you for your big heart, for your selfless desire to serve and to help other people. And thank you for taking time to tell us all about it. Thank you for the opportunity to meet you and be on this podcast. Listeners, I am grateful for you too. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, send an email to me at mvano at stmargaretschurch.org. Please join us again next time because our J-O-Y is not complete without you. This is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano who composed and performed our theme music and to Heidi Soule, our producer.